we're going to read scripture right now. So I want you all to stand and we're going to read First uh, Peter chapter 5, just a handful of passages there. We've been in a series going through the book of First Peter. We are actually almost done. This is literally the last chapter in the book of First Peter. If you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have ushers that are uh, getting ready to hand out some Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and keep it. It's our gift to you guys. But we're, we are literally on the end run of this entire book. And then we're going to be done with this book. And then we're going to be jumping into, in the fall, into a brand new series going through the Gospel of John. I'm really excited about that. So, uh, this, uh, I, I love, uh, it's called didactic, you know, more teaching-oriented type stuff. It's kind of my brain's wired that way. Um, what I also love narrative. And the, the Gospel of John is, is actually kind of both. It's both narrative and uh, didactic. So it has great storyline and great stories and stuff about Jesus. And I think he's a character that most people like, love and like to like. And, um, and it's also some great teaching. So I'm really excited about jumping into the Gospel of John in the fall. So I want to read right now to circle back to the book of First Peter. I'm going to just read verses uh, 1 through 4. I'm really only going to teach through 1 through 3 today, but I included verse 4 because I think it helps provide a little bit of context. So let's go ahead and read verse 1, chapter 5, First Peter. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not with compulsion, but willingly. God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And I'll have this on my notes here, so I'm going to read up there with y'all. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And this, this is the word of the Lord. So I want to pray right now, and then we'll get to work. So Jesus, thank you for your word. And I thank you that we have instruction and wisdom and guidance that we're not left to just sort of uh, uh, craft together our own little bespoke religion. God, thank you that we can literally just anchor ourselves, tether ourselves to this historic uh, truth that you began. And we don't have to live in a state of free fall or live in a state of constant innovation, live in a state of 16 million types of options to choose from. Thank you, God, that we can just receive what you've given to us and with the energy that you've entrusted to us by your Holy Spirit to live this out. So we ask for faithfulness this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all grab a seat? All right, all right. Um, so I want to jump in. Uh, next slide, kind of give a little bit of an uh, opening like idea or statement I think uh, kind of is uh, relevant to this. So in times of difficulty, and again, remember Peter, we've been looking at this over and over again, but Peter's written to a community of people that are following Jesus in a state or in a place where there's a lot of hostility. The culture is literally disrupted. Um, there's a there's a leader, a guy by the name of Caesar Nero, if you're familiar at all with any form of uh, uh, Roman history, you know that he was, he was a bad dude. Uh, he did not do well or fare well for Christians or minority groups for that matter. Uh, and what we see that there's a lot of hostilities in the culture. And these people are faced with like some real tragic situations of like, how do we live faithfully before Jesus, knowing the culture absolutely hates us, knowing that not only are there laws that are in opposition, in other words, uh, the emperor is not in favor of us, but also public opinion. So when those two things kind of come side by side, uh, the laws don't favor you as a minority group and popular opinion also hates you. That's 
that, that's the that's a mixture of a really bad situation. This is exactly where the Christians found themselves. So they're trying to navigate their landscape and try to figure out, and this is one of the reasons why we've said, by the way, this is so relevant to us because this is exactly where we find ourselves as Christians today living, you know, in America. The, the laws, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this or not recently, but they're not necessarily always in favor of, of Christians. And, and definitely popular opinion um, over that at least the past like 10, 15 years or so has kind of not gone up in terms of like, oh, we love Christians. We want like your ideas of, you know, morality and ethics to kind of influence culture at large. Like that's not really been the, the, the issue at play within our culture. Um, and so the, the question is even for us, like how do we faithfully live out Jesus? Do we become hostile and angry and embittered and kind of just take up to the, the, the front lines of, of Twitter and social media and just kind of become social you know, Christian warriors for, you know, goodness, or do we just retreat and move off into Idaho and, you know, become doomsday preppers and just like, like forget about everything else around us? Like, how, how do we act? Like, realistically, how do we act? And, and this is, this is exactly what I think Peter's trying to say. Like, I, nothing against Idaho, by the way, but the point that I would make is this, is that Peter's trying to like help them to live out the gospel in a culture that's hostile. Now, the fact of the matter is, in order to do this well, um, they, they need people that they can look to um, as leaders that embody this rightly and embody this well. And God historically, as I had written up here, in times of difficulty, God has historically appointed leaders to faithfully represent him and, his, and to lead his people. Now, we know throughout like the Old Testament, God has appointed like prophets and kings. Um, in, even in some cases, an entire book that's uh, called Judges. Judges were kind of a sort of like a prophet-like person, but these were people that God appointed. They were men, they were women, they were, they were, they were, many of them were just horribly flawed human beings. They were not to be viewed as necessarily, um, uh, model your life after them because they were pretty messed up themselves. For example, like Samson, he was not a guy that were like, follow the morality of Samson. Do not follow the morality of Samson is what I would suggest. Don't follow his, his example. But, and I would even add David, like David was a good guy. He was a man after God's own heart, but don't follow David's example. Like David was not meant to be a model to emulate your life after. David pointed to the one that we should ultimately look to, Jesus, right? David was sort of the precursor of that, but David was not necessarily in that. But he had a role, and his role was to point people to God, even though he was horribly flogged. Now we come to the New Testament, and God has continued sort of that posture that when there are moments and seasons uh, that are in need of information and transformation and help, God appoints people to rise up, to, to lead. There's, there should not be anything viewed as scandalous or weird in terms of God appointing leaders to, 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 to do this. Again, I realize in our modern-day church, there has been a very negative view in terms of any form of leadership um, and there's reasons for that, which I'll get to in just a moment. But the point that I would make is this, is that leaders have proclivities that are not healthy, just like any other human being. And when those proclivities kind of get played upon and they become toxic or create a culture that is hostile or abusive or destructive, then that creates sort of a general distrust in any form of leadership. Again, we've seen this on an institutional basis, we've seen this with regard to Hollywood. Nobody's ever really trusted Hollywood leaders anyhow. But um, And I would even add with politicians. Um, I mean, literally, they can, the historians and sociologists have actually pointed. We know, we can point to literally the, 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 the pivot in history when American general consensus distrust 
in leaders became a thing. It was actually during Nixon's reign, right? When, when the whole Nixon scandal uh, began to take place, that was when the, now it just continued to continue down that pathway. And we, you know, again, we live in a culture today where most people do not trust leaders for some good reasons. But don't get swept up in a consensus that would then say, I guess I'm the only one that should be entrusted with myself to lead, that, that all leaders are to be distrusted. Now, again, I realize I'm a pastor, I'm a leader. This may sound a little bit self-serving. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully this will bring us into some greater degree of just understanding what is God's intention, and really more so importantly, what is God's ideal template or standard for what leadership should look like? So the question that I have at the very bottom here, what do these faithful leaders look like? That kind of leads me to the next slide. So, uh, with that being said, I think the instruction that's given by Peter is important for at least two reasons. And I want to go through these real quickly because I think this will help set the stage. Number one, it helps provide pastors and leaders with a, a, a good template or schematic in terms of what to emulate. And when there's drift, it's one of the reasons why I love the Bible and why I love the church. The church actually has a built-in, baked-in, self-corrective mechanism that when it drifts, when it fails, when there's leaders that go rogue or become abusive or create toxic environments, Scripture, we can always go back to and realize there's a base note that we can anchor ourselves into that brings about correction. That we don't have to cast out the baby with the bathwater and completely remove ourselves from it. That has been kind of a tradition, especially within the past 15 years of Christianity, that when uh, leaders, and I think there's some reasons why this happens, which I'll hopefully get into. Um, when leaders go rogue, or scandals begin to arise, or abuses take place, um, when these things like the ty- types of things happen, it's been common for Christians at large to just basically say, "I'm done with Jesus and the church and everything," and just drift, run away, run out, and that's become very common in our culture and society at large. Instead of actually looking at the problem, the systemic problem that's baked in there and saying, man, what does Scripture actually say about this? Is this how how God envisioned leaders to conduct themselves or leaders to lead? And when you begin to realize actually Scripture says, no, that's not how it's envisioned, then that creates a pathway for repentance and restoration and renewal and God reordering the entire thing so that it becomes life-giving again. That's the beauty of the, of the Bible, is that we can literally always go back. Now, again, people throughout history who have represented Jesus have not always represented him well. That's, Christians don't need to deny that. You know, again, one of the biggest uh, arguments that oftentimes comes up against Christianity is like, well, what about the Middle Ages? Or what about the, you know, when, when, when Christians went out the Crusades? And, and I, honestly, I would just say like, yeah, it was horrible. It happened. Yes, evils took place in the name of God. I mean, you can even add uh, American slavery. There were slave masters that would quote. We got in this earlier when we were in the book of Peter. They would actually quote First Peter to their slaves that they were abusing and beating and saying, well, First Peter says, servants, obey your masters. This is what you're not doing. That is abusive. That is not Jesus. That's not God's ideal. That is an absolute distortion of the heart and the mind of God, as well as Scripture. It's, it's a wickedness that needs to be repented of and turned away from. 
Not ignored, not brushed under the rug, not act as if it didn't really happen, but to be addressed, but then recognized Jesus always creates margin for repentance, restoration, renewal, and reordering of goodness. So with that being said, not only does this provide pastors and leaders a template to emulate, uh, and then, again, where they drift to repent from and to return to, but secondly, I think there's uh, something that's really helpful for the, the general Christian. So several years ago, I was thinking about this, like, by and large, in any congregation or any church or any community of God's people, the majority of people are going to be just not going into any form of leadership. The majority of people. That means the majority of people in this room. So I think one time I was assessing at least our church in that time, and I was thinking maybe 3% of our church is going to take some form of actual leadership, where they're going to rise up, they're going to teach the Bible, they're going to be leading others as a spiritual leader, as a representative of Jesus, and any form of like vocational ministry or bivocational or non-vocational type of form of ministry. 3%. That leaves 97% of people that will never get involved in ministry. So my question is, for a, a passage like what Peter's writing here, that's directly applied for leaders, does this passage only apply to 3% of our entire community? And I would say, no, not at all. Actually, the 97%, which means the majority of y'all, at some point, you will find a church, you will try to locate a new community, whether it be, you know, in this community or another community, you move into another place, you're like, I need to find a new church. I just got a text from a friend of mine this morning who moved to LA. He's like, hey, we're trying out a new church. We're trying to figure out this is the right fit. So, so this is real. And for some of you, you may have been involved in a church before at some point or have found yourself in a situation where the leadership there has not rightly represented Jesus and you have been the victim of some form of abuse. So this is radically relevant for every single person here. Again, whether or not you're a leader, it becomes a template for you to emulate, or if you are not going to be a leader, you're just going to be someone that's going to try to find a church, something for you to look at. Because here's, here's the cultural currents that are at play right now. If you do not listen to the advice or wisdom that Peter's depositing, uh, I think it's really common for people that are looking for a church to just be swept up in a church based upon how cool is the pastor. I mean, it's, honestly, it's shocking the low bar that has been set for people to become pastors today. As long as the guy has a pair of skinny jeans and he looks really hip and his haircut looks awesome, he's qualified. And he's under the age of, you know, 30. He will make a great pastor. And I would be like, that's, that's a horrible thing to even think about. Again, I'm being facetious. But the point that I'd make is that we live in a culture today that is about celebrityism. And oftentimes people that are most prone towards trying to promote themselves are the biggest narcissists. And as a result of narcissism, they become people that create a system or culture around them that's all about them. Their social media is all about them. The sermons are all about them. The culture in the church is all about them. That creates a toxic environment. Now again, the average human being in which we live in America, we are wired by everything around us, to be attracted by celebrity. So when that celebrityism rises in our midst, and it's like, hey, I love Jesus too. We're like, oh my gosh, I got to go to that guy's church. But what you may not be aware of innately is that you're going into a system that's toxic. You just don't know it yet. And over time, you'll, you'll likely begin to become part of a system that then abuses and grinds and crushes and ruins and sucks life out of you as opposed to 
creates life within you, that makes demands upon you and doesn't really truly care for you. This is the culture we live in. Over the past 50 or 60 years, in American culture, in American uh, Christianity, there has been a radical movement that has been really systematized around a leadership moment. And, you know, throughout, man, I don't even know, like, as long as I've been a Christian. So I became a Christian mid-80s. Even throughout that, there has been this massive movement that's like the most important thing that pastors need to be all about is leadership structure, being the best leader. Now, again, some of the greatest churches, the biggest churches, I should say, the biggest churches in America have been framed around this mindset that's all about leadership. And what you end up having, in fact, there was a particular pastor, I'm not even going to say his name, but the point of the matter is, is that he literally led the charge, led the movement in the American pastoral, cultural shaping uh, uh, landscape to basically say everything is about leadership. Unfortunately, this guy several years ago, scandalously fell. And he created entire, now again, the point that I would make is, is, is not to not to pause and consider, but when that fall happened, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians have been destroyed, ruined in their souls, because it's all been built upon the system that's toxic in its core. It's really narcissistic. It's self-serving. But again, the broader culture, Christians, I, I, it's not just the blame. I mean, if you've followed the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, there's some, I think, important lessons to even learn in that. If you're not familiar with it, just go check it out. But I think there's some important lessons to even learn with that. Within that, it's not just simply a pastoral uh, responsibility. I think it's also there's a responsibility of, of everyone. Because, again, I, I sit back sometimes and I think, man, People support these ministries. They give money and time and energy to these ministries. And I'm like, you're feeding a system that's toxic. And it just feeds upon itself. And it actually feeds those egos of those pastors that then become even more abusive. They see themselves as even greater than what they ever really dreamed of themselves to be. And it creates a system that when they fall as human beings, then the entire system implodes and falls with it. And it creates a, a wake of brokenness. And so, I, I think there's a lot to be learned on both levels, whether it be you're a leader or whether or not you're a person just kind of trying to find a church to get plugged into. I want to read a quick quote by Scott McKnight, if you're not familiar with him. He's a, a scholar, theologian. He wrote a book called A Church Called Tov. It's, the word tov literally is the Hebrew word for, for good. And he creates this idea of a paradigm of saying a, a goodness culture. How do we create a, a church that is a goodness culture? Like creating Goodness, as opposed to toxic, right? Here's what he says. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote. quote so just go ahead and listen to it. I'm, I'm going to read it. It says, in a, church, er, in a toxic church culture, a celebrity pastor finds his way to make it all about himself, his vision, his ministry, his success, his glory. He may not always state it in such a bald-faced terms, but if you scratch beneath the surface, you'll find that people don't matter. The institutions matter. Power and fear dominate. And the only narratives told are those that prop up the pastor's vision and success. And loyalty becomes the supreme virtue. That's a really interesting insight. Uh, in church cultures that are about an ego of a pastor, loyalty is the highest level. In other words, if you are disloyal, you're distrusted, and you will at some point be sidelined and crushed and ground. It, that, he would suggest, is actually not a healthy trait 
there's a distinction that he would make between loyalty and faithfulness. Loyalty to the pastor and his vision and his ego and faithfulness to the gospel. There's a distinction because if you are faithful to the gospel, there's going to be times you, you might speak truth into the life of a person that needs to be corrected by the gospel uh, overtones. He goes on to say this final thing. For the servant pastor, everything is different. A culture of service turns everyone toward one another instead of toward themselves. People are first. Grace matters. Empathy is a first response. Truth is told. And doing what is good shapes the mission of the church. I love this. That's a, that's a good church. Like literally a good, quote, unquote, good church. A church of Tove. It's a church we want to be. We want to be a church that promotes, creates, produces, does good. And this is where I think Peter offers an enormous amount of help for us to really think about this carefully. So I want to jump in and really kind of ask two questions and I'm done. Number one, to whom is Peter addressing? Who's he talking to? So I want to jump in before and, and be, begin to read this. He starts off this entire little segment here in verse 1. He says this is where we're going to just jump back into the text and begin to uh, verse by verse kind of take a look at this. Because I think there's a lot of uh, weighty truths that Peter informs us as listeners. So number one, he starts with this little phrase. He says, I exhort, therefore, the elders. The word exhort. Some of your translations might vary in that. Some of your translations might say, I encourage you. The actual Greek word there is interesting. It's the word parakaleo. Uh, para meaning alongside. Kaleo means to call, to call alongside of someone else. Kind of the, the actual terminology that's utilized here. Um, there's another very similar word that's actually used in the New Testament to describe even the Holy Spirit. Let me read that to you. John chapter 15, verse 26. Then Jesus said, he says, when the comforter, the word comforter that he uses there is literally the word parakletos. Very, it's, a, it's a variation of the very word. The, the big idea here is parakaleo, parakletos, literally means encourager. The Holy Spirit's job, role, is to come alongside, to help, to bring assistance, to bring strength. If you're weak, to bring support. If you're going through a tough time and you feel with despair, to bring healing and wholeness and peace to your soul. If you find yourself uh, despairing and going through really tough times, to bring encouragement to you. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit's aim is ultimately ending up to do. And what Peter's saying here is that I'm coming alongside you to give encouragement. Uh, again, some of your translation might say exhort. When I hear the word exhort, um, I, at least some of the cultural baggage that I have, I hear someone like yelling at someone. Like, I exhort you. Do better. <laughs> That's not what Peter's saying. He's actually just saying, look, I, I'm encouraging you. And the word encourage and exhort literally are the same Greek word. So this is where, you know, when you're doing Bible translation. I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch, but variation of, of, of idea. I, I want encouragement. I don't always maybe not want exhortation. I want to be encouraged. So when I'm going through a tough time, I love when people come alongside, come alongside the word parakaleo, come alongside, and they offer assistance. That allows me and have my soul to be expanded and strengthened. That's what, what Peter's saying. I'm writing to you Leaders, and here's where I want to get into a little bit of the question of, like, who is he writing to? Now, there's basically four uh, words that Peter used. I'm going to go through each one of these that are either like a title, you are never going to be a leader, that helps you to have some degree of an expectation. So if you drop into a church, this is what you should expect of someone that calls himself a pastor. I mean, honestly, like this, this modern world today that kind of views the pastor as like a CEO. He's at the top of the food chain. He's like in his ivory tower. He's untouchable. No one can ever reach him. To me, that, that's a CEO. 
That is not a pastor. That's not, it's very, they're very different things. He may have gifts of leadership. He may be a really good talker and communicate. Number one, he's going to use the word elder. Now, again, listen to this again. He says, uh, I exhort you as, uh, uh, I write to the elders that are among you as a fellow elder. And again, number one, it's just, it's important to me to note that, that Peter's writing, hey, I'm one of you guys. This is important, I think, at least in a historical value system, because Peter's not saying I'm the Pope of the church. Everybody bow in supremacy to me because I am the top dog. It's not at all what he's saying. That, that becomes a myth that gains strength over the next several hundred years after the early church, after the formation. And then Peter becomes viewed as basically the supreme father or, 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 or papa or uh, pope is the, the word that gets used there. Peter's just saying, look, I'm, I'm an elder with you, alongside you, doing what you're doing, hanging out with people, teaching the word. Instructing people to see the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. And here's the first word that he uses. The word, the word elder, literally we get the uh, English word presbyters from, or presbyterian. If you've ever heard of the denomination presbyterian, it literally just means overseer. It also can mean elder, like an older person. Someone that has, you know, literally like physically gray hair, which means, or at least should have historically meant and should historically currently mean the older you get, the more gray you get, the more wisdom you accumulate because you got life experience and trusting Jesus and so on and so forth. But the point, it doesn't always necessarily mean that. But again, I have social media just like you. So I see guys in their 60s and I'm like, they is not wise. he's not a wise person. He might have a lot of knowledge, but he's not wise. There's a distinction there. But the point that I make is this, is that he's saying that there are elders and leaders that are among you. That have this wisdom. Secondly, he addresses those in verse 2 where he uses the word over, it's an English word that we see here, overseer. Uh, the word that's actually used there is episcop, uh, episcotus. Um, it literally means overseer. So epi means over, and scotus means sight or vision. Uh, so this is the, the literally the image, uh, and again, we also get the English word episcopalian from, um, which is a, an idea of someone that is over someone else, not for the purpose of overruling them, dominating them, but being able to see. And in an ancient world, he, again, he uses the language to describe a shepherd as a pastor, but a pastor was kind of an ancient word that was used to describe like a shepherd, like literally a shepherd, someone that shepherded sheep. That was their job. That was their role. They took care of the sheep. And it was not a, a pleasant role. It was not a role that necessarily had a lot of uh, high cultural currency. However, it was important because what God says, look, I am like a shepherd over Israel. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. And what he then uses here is this language to say, those that are called or tasked with the role of overseeing the church, they are like shepherds, which means they find themselves getting dirty with the sheep. They help the sheep out when they get stuck. And again, if you know anything about sheep, you know that oftentimes sheep are not necessarily the smartest creature. They follow others and they sometimes can get themselves into trouble or stuck or die or uh, they're vulnerable they don't really fight back and you, you have they are in absolute need of a shepherd to help them to guide them not not to simply fleece them or beat them or take advantage of them but the idea that he's using here is that just like god was a shepherd over the people of israel so i want you to be shepherds over these people as like an overseer, to be able to see, we might even use the word vision, to have vision. And the big idea I think that's being conveyed here is that they get an idea of the big picture. They're able to see what are the needs 
that are within the landscape of the church and the community? What are the needs that, that the community is in need of and how to respond to those needs as best as they can? I think it also uh, is an idea of saying the higher up that, that shepherd would get in terms of like, like literally climbing up to the top of a rock, looking out and being able to identify there's a wolf over there, or there's a mountain lion over there. He's able to now see where those threats are at and then be able to address those threats in a, in a, in a manner that's uh, going to be suitable to help these sheep flourish. Thirdly, we see him address them in verse 3 as servants. The word that's literally used there, the phrase, is those that are in your charge. In your charge. The actual Greek word is uh, kleros. Any, uh, any, uh, do I have it up there? Yeah, I have it. Darn. I was going to ask you, do you have any guesses what you would see this as the English translation for this? So we get the, we get the English word cleric or clerk. Clerk. You know what a clerk is? Like someone that like takes care of, of someone else's goods. They're, they're not in charge. They're not the CEO. They're a clerk. They're serving someone else. They're, they're being responsible. Um, when I first moved up here, I worked at several grocery stores, and I was a grocery clerk. I hated that job, by the way. Hated it. Uh, I, like back then, it was like paper or plastic. And I, again, I, I, I had worked. I had to work in order to, to pay our bills. And so we did that for almost two years. And uh, part of that was like paper plastic. And then people, I would ask them, like, do you, do you want me to carry your groceries out to your car? And, and I, I remember one night in the middle of the night, I'm giving way too much information, but it's kind of fun sometimes. Anyways, um, I remember just look, look, looking up at the stars being like, God, I hate this job. I hate it. I, people treat me like garbage. Just like nobody cares about a, you know, a clerk. And so now when I go to a store and the guy's like paper or plastic, and even though he's like 16 years old, he's got, you know, braces, whatever, like, yes, how is your day going, bro? Like, you know, I mean, it's kind of like if you've ever worked in the service industry, I mean, if you've never worked as a waiter at a, at a, at a, at a restaurant, which I've done as well, like you, you might be prone to be the worst human beings possible. You, you, you make major demands. You tip horribly. Don't be that person if that's you. Please just change your ways and stop doing that. Become a better person. Make a commitment to say, I'm going to tip as well as I can. I'm going to not make major demands of these people. Done with my rent. But the point that I would make is this. That's what a clerk is. A clerk or a cleric is someone that serves on behalf of someone else. Um, those that are in your charge. Another way to think of this is, is, is a steward. Is a steward. Um, if you have ever, like, invested money with an agent, someone that is uh, tasked with responsibility, it's not their money. It's your money. They are a clerk or a servant of you to make sure that, that money gets used in proper, well-managed ways. The fourth thing, as he describes in verse 3, the second part of verse 3, is uh, to be examples. This is interesting. The actual Greek word that he uses there was as typos, uh, T-Y-P-O-S. So we would actually get the English word typewriter from this. Uh, literally, it means to strike something, uh, and in the act of striking something, it leaves an impression. So it's, you know, again, Greek's awesome language, and you're going to realize, oh, that's where you get the word typewriter from. Or we do this thing called typing, right? It's not necessarily doing a functional, like, striking of something, uh, but at one point, it, it did. The hammer would strike, it would hit the paper with a little bit of ink, it would leave an imprint. And, and that's what he's saying, is that uh, you, you are to be an example, so that as you live your life in front of these other people, they will see your example. You will make an impression on how they respond to you in ways that are consistent with the life of Jesus. Now, this is all important because, again, this is where I would say it's, again, in our culture, it's very easy to try. <clears throat> Look, I have to say something that I, I think, unfortunately, in our modern church 
systems, especially Western, uh, more evangelical type, non-denominational churches that are very top-heavy in terms of like the leader. There's one leader that runs the entire gig. Like there is way more of a proneness for that person to go rogue and then to cause incredible devastation upon the lives of, of many people or to become abusive and to create a culture that's secretive or to create a culture that if in that situation where somebody has been taken advantage of or abused physically, emotionally, sexually, in any way, and this, this happens, that when they bring their stories up, they get shoved off in the margin because there's a deep commitment to, to protect not only the pastor, because he's a celebrity. He's so good, so gifted. Even within Christian circles that I'm most familiar with, I've watched this happen up close where you might have people that have been abused. But there's been such a reluctance to deal with the abuser because they are such a gifted communicator. And what ends up happening is you have this system where the abuser is protected and the abused is thrown under the bus. So if you just pause and think about it, in other words, to put it this way, rather than the church being a place that brings healing and wholeness and goodness, the church becomes a place that promotes brokenness and destruction and ruin and guilt and shame and alienation. In other words, it does the exact opposite. And I just feel like I, I got to say this as well. Like maybe, maybe that has been your story. Maybe you have been someone that has been a part of a system or a culture or a church or have been up front and close with some form of pastoral leadership staff that has, has done this to you. I, on behalf of Jesus, like, again, this is, I'm sorry that, number one, you've gone through this. Number two, this is not the heart of Jesus. This is where the, the self-corrective nature of the gospel becomes so hope and life-giving. Because it reformats, reframes our understanding to say, this is how Jesus really wants the whole thing to work. So that you have leaders that are careful to use the energy and the strength that they have and the authority that they have to bring life into you, not steal it from you. And again, I think all of us have a role to play in this. To recognize that just because a church has great success, and I say that in air quotes, or because the pastor is incredibly just like gifted as a communicator, as a talker. Or because he's got, you know, massive followers on his social media feed. That does not mean that that is a church that in any way, shape, or form represents the heart and characteristic that Jesus intends. It just might mean that it's a very influential church. That's all. And, and it may be a setup in the long run for some deep heartache that I think Jesus actually really cares about. So with that being said, I want to move on to the next question. I'm done. What is Peter instructing them to do? What is Peter instructing them to do? Now, in short, I would just say that what Peter's, as well as the rest of the New Testament uh, picture of what a shepherd or a pastor or a leader is to do, is really to do these two things. Feed the sheep, lead the sheep, and protect the sheep. Feed, lead, protect. Feed, scripture, teach them the Bible. It's one of the reasons why I say oftentimes, like, like look, my opinions will not be an ultimate means of help for you. Jesus will. The scriptures will. The authoritative voice of the apostles will. My, my opinions might carry you to some degree at some length, but at some point it will fail. Like, 
as we gather, this is the beauty of as we gather, really this is about what does God have to say to us? What's the word that the Lord wants to speak to us? And my job is as best as I can to say this is what God has to say. How do we know that? Because here's what the scriptures teach. Here's how the church history has interpreted and understood this. And, and, and if I have my own opinions on things, then to just claim this is my opinion. So take it for what it's worth. Do your research. If it lines up with scripture, awesome. If it helps you, great. But make sure it's ultimately anchored in the text, the scripture, the heart of Jesus in the spirit of God. So with that being said, uh, it also involves leading. Leading not in a way of CEO-like disconnect, but in a way that's in connection and in relationship to one another. Getting to know people, getting to know their life challenges and hardships, coming alongside people in the midst of those difficulties, and ultimately protecting. So this comes across, obviously, in being able to to speak as Scripture reinforces uh, good understandings of who God is and good theology, but also sometimes at times uh, addressing false theological ideas or false cultural interpretations of what God is like that are really uh, harmful or destructive to a one's long-term uh, life and flourishing, to be able to address those things. So lead, uh, uh, feed, lead, and protect. Um, now, with that being said, I want to jump into just kind of like some things that Peter is going to say, and I'll just go through each one of these, and I'm going to finish with a passage that I think will be helpful for all of us to just think about. Uh, number one, he tells them to not be doing this uh, pastoral oversight leadership from compulsion, meaning forcefulness, like I'm being forced to do this, you know, to not do that. Now, again, do I always love my job? Not always. I love you guys. But sometimes there are some of you that are, have been tough over the years, right? In fact, it is. Like, it's, it's tough. It's tough. But my job is learning how to discover God's love and living into that and letting that love shape me as a human being, which means expansion of my own soul, expansion of my patience, expansion of my heart. Do I always do that well? First pass? No. Thank God for multiple chances, right? But the point that I would make is not out of compulsion, not out of forcefulness. Uh, someone that's serving Jesus in any way or any capacity should never be doing it out of like, man, I got to do this because I got to do this. Like, this is my job and I have to do this because I'm under absolute obligation or compulsion to do this. Like, that oftentimes carries over into just a really bad attitude. And that's not healthy or helpful for anybody. I mean, if you ever are in a situation and you're kind of talking with someone and you realize, like, I don't get the idea that they really even want to be with me. Like, that's not good. If you're, like, talking with someone, they're always like, they're like this. It's like, I'm listening to you, bro. Like, really? Are you really listening? Or are you looking at your phone? Like, that. at some point, you're like, I, I don't even, do you really want to even be engaged in this? Or are you just doing this out of pure compulsion? And then he goes on to say, but rather to do so out of willingness. Willingness. Secondly, he says in the second verse, he says, not from or for shameful gain. This is the idea of getting rich off of uh, Jesus' people. Now, again, Scripture's pretty clear. Uh, pastors, those that teach, those that are part of this work that Jesus is creating are, are worthy of uh, payment uh, so that they don't have to consistently. Now, again, as best as is possible, and he, deci- he describes those that are especially teaching and informing and instructing, uh, he says are, are part of this uh, parcel. And again, this, this is where it can sound a little bit self-serving. I'm well taken care of. I don't need a race. I'm all good. Thank you. But the point that I would make is this, is that God has been faithful, and I have no needs besides just trying to 
continue to be faithful with what God has called me to do. But the point that I would make is, is there are those. And again, we've, we've all read the headlines. We've all been aware of the various scandals that, you know, a pastor, you know, buys a, another, you know, jet liner, jet streamer, jet, you know, it's just like another $60 billion, you know, spent on whatever. It's like, yeah, at some point you're just like, what is going on here? Like, this is crazy what's happening. It feels like someone's making incredible personal gains at the expense of other people. And that gets frustrating. And it leads to even more distrust in all forms of leadership. And instead, he says, but from an eagerness to do so in a way that fuels uh, just, I'm, I'm eager to serve God's people. And then thirdly, he says, not for dominance over others. Uh, again, this is where, uh, like I said, I think we've, we've seen a rash of this. I would definitely say over the past 20 to 25 years, a rash of leaders that lead because leading becomes a platform to elevate them. Especially you throw into social media, you throw into all these people that are, that are consistently affirming and commenting and liking and loving and sharing and retweeting and inviting friends. And all of a sudden you literally have this like a celebrity. That's just an unhealthy state. This is never, ever the intent of Jesus. I mean, if you even look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was sort of a celebrity. I mean, he had a lot of people that followed him. But Jesus was regularly, consistently pushing that away. And bringing himself into a place of deep connection, interconnection with people's brokenness. So he says, not for dominance over others, authoritarianism, controlling, manipulation. But instead, he says, as an example of Jesus' humble service. Now, I want to finish with a little passage in John chapter 21. Because I think this is important. Because uh, Peter obviously has a template that he's following. Where did Peter get the template from? Where he learned this from? No doubt Peter learned this from Jesus. And I'm going to read you a story that I think uh, one that sort of a... a brings together, I think, all of this imagery for Peter. So Peter uh, uh, responds to Jesus in John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. Let's go ahead and listen to it, and then I'll finish with some final thoughts. Jesus said to Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, again, this is right after Jesus rose again from the dead. Um, Peter is gone back to the region of the Galilee, which where he came from. If you remember, he was a fisherman. He basically went back to his old vocation. Um, he, he knew that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But if you remember, before Jesus died, what, what did Peter do that kind of put Peter at kind of an awkward, you know, relational situation with Jesus? Remember, he betrayed him. Betrayed him three times. Three times. Like, like that happened. And Peter, I, I'm certain, did not forget that. So Peter was probably living in this, like, cycle of guilt, shame, regret, right? Like, oh, my gosh, I, I failed. I blew it. And, well, you know, horrible human being I am. And, man, I, Jesus will never love me again. He'll never accept me. Maybe he'll accept me, but he'll never use me again. I'm just, I'm beyond repair. I'm broken eternally. And here's Peter sitting around the fire, and Jesus comes up to him, and uh, he, you know, introduces himself. And he says, Peter, do you, do you love me more than these? And again, this is kind of one of those areas where when you're reading the story, you don't really know exactly what Peter's or what Jesus is talking about. Was you know, again, commentators kind of uh, have creative ways of, like, reinterpreting and trying to articulate. You know, what is Jesus talking about when he says these, love me more than these? Is he referring to the fish and the fishing nets, kind of like his old vocation? Peter, do you love me more than your old vocation? Are you devoted to me more than even what you used to do? Uh, others have suggested maybe what Jesus is saying, um, pointing to like John and James and the other disciples. Like, Peter, do you, do you love me? Do you really love me more than all of these? And if that's the case, wow, that's kind of a stinging question because Peter failed. They didn't. Peter did. 
But before that, Peter says, Jesus, even though all of these are going to de- deny you, I will never deny you. And that's exactly what Peter did next was he denied Jesus. And Jesus is kind of bringing that whole situation back up. Do you love me more than these guys? It's kind of like nudge, nudge. Remember? Remember what happened? Uh, of course I remember. Yeah, I'm living in that. But then he goes on to say, again, I, I love Jesus because I don't, guys, listen, this is beautiful. I don't care how much you have failed, how much you have done, how much you have lived in a state of regret. There is always another chance that Jesus is right there giving you another option to turn from your sin and to enter into the call that he has for your life. Do you realize how incredibly hope-giving that is? He's always, always, always there with that same offer. And here's what he says to Peter. Do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I, I love you. And then he said to him, feed my lambs. Same, same words that we just read. Feed my lambs. Verse 16. And then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. And again, there's a lot more going on in the text here than I have time to unpack. And then he said to him, tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. The, the, the little guys, cute little guys kind of bounce around. And my, my sheep, the bigger guys, and more the older ones, right? They have more matted skin and more matted, you know, they're, they're, they're old grumpies. Like, do, do, you, do you love the younger ones? As, and will you feed the older ones? All of them in between. And Peter's like, all right. And then verse 17, he says, then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So what's, what's Jesus' heart for his sheep? That they're tended. Let's personalize that. What's Jesus' heart for you? Broken? Maybe you've accumulated a bunch of garbage world in your skin, in your fur. It's become matted. Your soul has become stained and apathetic and tired and weary. You've become filled with despair because the world just does that to you. You may have been once devoted to Jesus, but you failed. You failed, just like Peter failed. You may have even been a leader and you failed. You've, you've been part of that bad leadership structure and that you've brought pain and hurt and brokenness in the lives of other people. Look, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus says, come to me, I will make you new, and I will use you as a means to bring hope and healing in this world. So again, whether or not you're a leader and you've been in that zone or you are someone that is a sheep, meaning you're just a Christian, you're the 97% that will probably just continue to be part of a church, serve in a church, be part of a community, uh, and, and look for a community. All of us are in desperate need of just recognizing that at the very, if you follow this idea of shepherding or pastoring all the way upstream, you will find it, Jesus, this chief shepherd, like we're going to get to next week, this overseer over our souls that is deeply committed to your life and flourishing. This is one of the reasons why I would say, like, in the context of our world, where else can you go that will find something or someone that is so deeply committed to your life and flourishing other than Jesus? It doesn't exist. You'll have friends that will be there for you as long as you fill in the gaps of their emptiness 
But the moment you fail, the moment you are not able to contribute, the moment that you're not able to, to give, to be part, at some point you will be canceled. At some point you will find yourself as an, as an outsider. But the beauty of the gospel is no matter how far we've drifted, we have a shepherd that loves us and is devoted to us. And the way that Peter's saying this gets expressed is through good faithful shepherds that are committed to Jesus and to the people and the way that Jesus was committed to those people to help create a culture and environment that's ultimately good. So, I'm done. I'm going to invite you all to stand right now, and I want to pray over all of us. So whether or not you are a leader or someone that is just in a place that has in need of Jesus's grace, I'm going to pray for all of us. So that really at the end of the day, um, that we as a church community would be committed and embody this goodness that Jesus is up to in this world. So Father, right now we come to you, just no matter where we're at, whatever types of circumstances we find ourselves in, no matter what types of pain that has happened to our lives or wounding or abuse, even at the hands of people that have represented you. We thank you that Jesus, that's not you. We thank you that that is not you. You are the one that takes sheep that are hurting and wounded and broken and sad and broken and destroyed and crushed and depressed and filled with anxiety and you bring healing because you are one that is for us. God, I pray that we would become this community that creates, promotes goodness. So God, as we scatter now, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to be people that live faithfully before you. God, for those that are leaders and teachers and pastors in this church community, whether it be from children's ministry all the way to community group leaders or wherever, God, that you would empower and enable these leaders to rightly reflect who you are. Realize the stakes are high. James says, don't let many of you be teachers. You're going to receive a a higher uh, judgment upon how we lead. And Jesus, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to be those people that look like you in all of our ways. We thank you for our gathering here now. As we scatter, help us to take you in all those areas that need you most. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.